Actually, the incident took place in the classroom where the professor instructed his students as part of a class assignment to write the name Jesus on the paper and then to place the paper on the floor and stomp on it. Now, of course, most of the students complied, but there were some students who refused to do so. As a matter of fact, one of the students complained to the school administrator. But when the school administrator didn't do anything about it, he took it to the local media. And he even told the local media that he went to the school officials protesting about this assignment. And so the, the statement that this student made had been recorded. And this is what he said to the local media. He said, anytime you stop on something, it shows that you believe that something has no value. So if you were to stomp on the word Jesus, it says that the word has no value. Now, initially, the university defended the assignment and the professor and even the curriculum. But then later, they recanted and apologized in a prepared statement that was posted on its website. And it was reported that this news, this story made a quite a splash in all of the news and social media outlets, even causing many people to publicly denounce and condemn the ashes of the university as yet another example of secular anti-Christian sentiment. Now, the person who wrote about this article went on to say this, and he was saying this to his readers. He says, even though this story shocks and offends all who hold the name of Jesus dear, I've got more news for you. Now, this next statement that he was about to say really opened up my eyes and really stirred something in me. And I'm hoping that it will get your attention as well. But this is what he said to his readers. You have effectively stomped on the name of Jesus each and every time we fail to honor him, whether it's by attitude, your actions, or your principles. And he says, before you can denounce or condemn the actions of the professor or the school administrators or anybody else who show the disrespect to the Lord Jesus and what we believe, let us first ask ourselves this question. How have I stomped on Jesus today? Now, of course, when the writer talked about stomping on Jesus, he was referring to the one thing that I want to talk about tonight. And that is the lack of the fear of God. Tonight, I'm going to begin a two-part series on understanding the fear of the Lord. And what we're going to be looking at is we're going to begin to look at how do, how, what is the fear of God? And why is it so important that we live a life of God-fearing or, 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 or godly fear of God? What are the biblical examples in the Bible that tell us what that looks like? We're also going to take a look at some of the practical ways that we can learn how to live a godly fear, a fear of God. And also some of the benefits that come with living a, a godly fear. And so the, uh, one of the things that I want to show you before we go to the book of Hebrews is that the Bible actually makes reference of those who stomped on Jesus in the book of Hebrews. But before we go there, let me just say this, that the author of Hebrews, when he wrote this, he wrote primarily to Christian Jews. And it was at the time when they were having, you know, going under some heavy persecution, causing them to become discouraged. How many of you have ever been discouraged when you've been persecuted? 
most of us have, if not all of us. But these very same Christian Jews that he was writing to were the same ones that received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the same Jews that, re that received Jesus as Savior and Lord. These were the same Jews that received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And these are the same Jews that enjoy the fellowship of other believers of like faith. But as he wrote this, these same Jews were on the verge of turning away their faith from the Lord Jesus Christ. And turning away from all those wonderful things that come to believing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Some say that the book of Hebrew is the book of exhortation. And it's not like a letter, but more of a sermon. And it's filled with exhortations, warnings, and challenges to the body of Christ or to the Christian Jews. And so this is what he said to these Christian Jews. And I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and, and look at verse 29. And I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. It says, just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God. And have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy. And have insulted and disdained or disrespected the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. What we see here are a people who trampled on the Lord Jesus. Who considered the blood of Jesus as something that is common, unholy, unclean and insignificant. And completely disrespected, rejected, and despised the Holy Spirit. This is nothing but an example that demonstrates the reality of a lack of the fear of God that exists. Not only in the world, but sadly, in the church today. How many of you believe that? Now, many of you will agree with me when I say that there's a lack of fear in the world today. Even the Apostle Paul makes mention of that in Romans 3 and verse 18 when he says they have no fear of God at all. They meaning the Jew and the Christian Gentile, the Gentile, uh, the Gentile world. And he was saying that all are under sin. And there are none righteous, not even one. He says no one has ever sought after God. No one understood God. And there is no fear before their eyes. This was Paul's statement. Indicating that there is no lack of fear in this world. Now, let me say this. Where there is no fear of God, there is no good to be found. More and more people are living as though there is no God. So that leads to the question. What happens when the fear of God is missing? When there is no fear of God, there is no fear of the coming judgment and punishment. And when there is no fear of the coming punishment and judgment, then anything goes. And we see that in the world today. The world says if it's good, then it's called evil. And if it's called evil, then it's considered good. That's just an example of how things are today in this world. There's no fear of God. So it, it's very clear from the scriptures and from what we see around us that people go around living as though there is no God. And the scripture says, those who say there is no God is considered a fool. But the unfortunate thing about this is that the same thing can be said about the church. There is a lack of fear <clears throat> or godly fear in the church. 
Now, I don't believe that most Christians go out of their way to purposely not fear God. I believe that one of the reasons why, <coughs> excuse me, why the lack of fear of God is because there's a lack of understanding for who God really is. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. I don't believe they understand what it means to fear God. And then there are others who lack the fear of God simply because of familiarity with God. And therefore losing the sense of awe and respect. You know, it's like if you became familiar with your boss at work. And, uh, you know, you became friendly, you, you talk every day, you share same interests, and you develop a bond. But when, your bond, when it's time for your boss to become a boss and pulls you aside and tells you, you've got to step up your, 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 level, uh, your, your level of commitment here in your job. Or when he says, you've got to stop coming in late for, to work or, or you, you've got to stop calling out. All of a sudden, that person becomes offended and becomes angry with the boss. Why? Because he's lost respect for the boss's authority. He failed to see that this was his boss because of that familiarity. The same, the same is true with the church. There's a lack of fear of God because of the familiarity. Let's take the time now to focus on what it means to fear God. But let me start out by using an illustration that I feel that will help you to understand what the fear of God is. So let's say that if a driver was driving 80 miles an hour... And as he was driving, he notices a state police car up ahead, parked alongside of the road. What do you, what's, the, what's he do? What's that? Apparently, some of you have some experience at this. But a whole lot of things, uh, a whole series of things happens or goes into motion at that moment. The first thing that happens is that the driver's heart starts beating heavily. <laughs> some of you are just chuckling, so you know what I'm talking about. Then the brain tells the foot to take your foot off the accelerator and to ease down on the brakes, being careful not to slam on it. Then the eyes quickly look down at the speedometer to make sure that the, the, the speed is decreasing to the required speed limit. Then the eyes quickly shift up to the rearview mirror to see if he got caught or not. <laughs> okay, you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I think they're talking about you. <laughs> but here's the point. The point of the message is this. The point of this is this. That the presence of the police officer produced a healthy respect for the law. Right? Whenever there's an officer present, now watch this. The driver adjusts to the law because of respect for the officer's authority. Now, he may not like the authority, he may not agree with the authority, he may not even want the authority, but he still respects it. I mean, what does a person consider somebody who drives 90 miles an hour after seeing a police officer without making any adjustments to his speed? What do you call a person like that? Yeah, some, call, some call him a fool, some crazy, some both. Right? But why? Because that driver failed to respect or show reverence to the law. As Christians, we need to be very careful not to live our lives living according to our own set of laws or standards. Because when we do, we are not showing any respect for God or acknowledging his rule or authority 
over every area of our lives. Are you hearing me this evening? We got to be very careful not to live our lives according to our own set of rules and standards. Just as a driver is required to fear the authority of a police officer whether they see him or not, a Christian shows true fear of God by how they acknowledge his authority. In other words, a true fear of God means that God is the reference point in wherever we go, whatever we do, and whatever we're involved in. The Bible tells us in Psalm 111 and verse, uh, verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then in Proverbs 3, 7, in the New Living Translation, it says, Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then to not fear the Lord is the beginning of foolishness. So when the Bible tells us to fear the Lord, what he's saying is that we are to have a deep respect, reverence, honor, and awe for God's power and authority. The word fear in both the Hebrew and, and Greek have several shades of meaning. In some cases, it may mean to, to, uh, to be frightened or to be uh, terrorized or, or, or great terror. In other cases, it means reverence, awe, honor, or respect. But in the context of the fear of the Lord, the words convey a positive reverence. The Hebrew word for fear is yare, which means to fear, to respect, or to reverence, and it is viewed in a positive light. In other words, it has a positive connotation. Nowhere in the English language do you see words that, ha that, that, uh, that have a positive uh, the, the word positive fear. There's nowhere in the English language where you'll find positive fear. But in the Hebrew and Greek, the, it conveys a positive connotation. The, he, the, the Greek word, however, for, uh, for fear is the word phobo, which is where we get the word phobia. Many fears. You know, a lot of people suffer from many different phobias. A fear of water, a fear of heights, a fear of crowded places. But this word also carries a positive connotation because it can mean a reverential fear of God. But, and, and that's just not merely a fear of his power or righteous retribution. But it, instead it carries a, a, a positive connotation, a positive light. In other words, it is a wholesome fear that would cause one to become apprehensive about doing anything or saying anything that would displease God. Uh, are you getting the picture here? So when the Bible tells us to fear God, it's usually telling us, it usually refers to an attitude of reverence and respect and not outright terror. When God says that we have to fear him, he's talking about respect and honor, not to be afraid of him. The Bible gives us many examples of fear that have gone wrong. For example, look at James chapter 2 and look at verse 19. James 2.19, James says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even demons believe, and they tremble. Now, we know this for, because in, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, we, we read the story where Jesus comes across a man who was demon-possessed. As a matter of fact, the man had several demons. But the moment he confronted Jesus, the demons cried out, 
Another translation says they screamed. Why? Because they recognized who they were facing. They knew it was Jesus, the Son of God, because they even said it. What do we have? What do we, what do we need from you, Lord Jesus, Son of God? But then it was something interesting that they said. He says, have you come here to torment us before the time? Obviously, they were afraid of something. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and verse 10, it says that the devil and all of his angels will be thrown into the lake of fire, where there they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. If there was anyone who has every reason to be afraid, to be in great terror, is the devil, because of the ultimate fate that he's about to face. Another example of fear that's gone wrong is in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 24 and 25. If you go there and you know the story about the parable of the ten talents where the, the master comes and he was getting ready to go on a long journey. And he calls three of his servants together and gives to each one a certain amount of talent, which is money. And to uh, each according to their own ability. To the one he gave five talents, to a second he gave two, and the, to the third he gave one. Then he left on his journey. After a while, he comes back and he calls the servants together, all three of them, to give an account of what they've done with the talents that they received. And the first man who received, who received the five talents came back and doubled his, his talents and gave it to his master. The second doubled his talents and he gave that to his master. And of course, the master was well pleased. But the third servant came back with only the one talent that was given to him from the first place. And of course, the master was not well pleased and very disappointed in him. And the scripture says in verse 24, this was the, the, the servant's response to the master. He says, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now look at verse 25, because this is the real reason why he failed to double his talents. He said, and I was what? Afraid. The word afraid means to be terrified or frightened. And he went and hid his talent in the ground. And he says, look, there you have what is yours. Now, obviously, this, this did not end well for this servant because in verse 30, the owner or the, the master says, uh, calls him an unprofitable servant and then cast him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which leads me to this next verse. Look at Revelations 21 and verse 8. Look at what it said. But the fearful or the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Obviously, this word fear, this particular fear, uh, does not have a positive ending but rather a negative ending. So it's obvious that this is not the kind of fear that God is calling us to. He's calling us to respect, not to fear. Many people fear many bad things. There are people who fear accidents. There are people who fear viruses. There are people who fear crime committed against them. There are people who, are, who, are, who fear um, tropical storms and, and chemical weapons, terrorism, all of these bad things people are afraid of. But to be afraid of a loving Heavenly Father, why would God want us to be afraid of Him? 
Because that's not what God is saying here. He does not want us to be afraid of him. He wants us to honor him. He wants us to respect him. He wants us to revere him and to hold him in awe. Fearing God is based on our knowledge of who he is. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 17. It says this, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, that is, the fear of God. Verse 18, Knowing that, or having a knowledge that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But, verse 19, knowing that you were redeemed or having a knowledge that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the fear of God is based on our knowledge that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The fear of God is based on our knowledge that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Our fear of God is based on our knowledge that God has demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. He is a holy God. The fear of God is to have this deep respect, honor, and awe of his power and authority based on our knowledge of who he is And we know that he is God, who is righteous, who is holy, who is majestic, who is all-powerful and all-knowing. We also know him as our Father, who is loving, who is patient, who is kind, who is tender-hearted, who is forgiving, who is merciful. Proverbs 1-7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the first step to learning about who God really is. Amen? So, let's talk about why it's important to fear the Lord. And I want to spend a little bit of time with this because there are several reasons why living a life of godly fear is so important. When you study the Bible, there is no mistaking the repeated commands to fear God as being something that is absolutely crucial in our walk with the Lord. It is also expected that all of mankind is to fear God. Look at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and look at verse 13. This book ends with the very important and final words of Solomon. And these were his words. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands for this is everyone's duty. Look at verse 14. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Now, these words here are the total sum of man's life comprised in just these two verses. And there are three things that we can glean from that are important and and important truths. And, And the first thing is that to fear God is the whole duty of man. In other words, it is the entire world who are called to fear God. It is all of mankind's responsibility to fear God. The second thing that we look at here is that we are to obey his commandments because to obey his commandments are the results of our respect and honor of God. It is the lifestyle of a God-fearing life. 
And the third thing is that to fear God is every person's responsibility, which is underlined, watch this, by this truth, that God will judge every man's act, every attitude, every action, every thought, every words, even our principles, and will be judged, including every hidden thing. Everyone is answerable to God for everything he or she does. Even the things that are obvious and things that are concealed. But the fear of God is the whole duty of man. It is the entire duty. It is all of our duties, all of our responsibility to fear God. It is a universal call. In other words, the fear of God is not designed or reserved for Christians only, but it's for the entire world. Look at Psalm 33 and verse 8. Verse 8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord and let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. It is not only a universal calling, but it is also a daily requirement. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at verse 12. I just realized the clock is out. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 says this, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? How many of you get up in the morning and ask yourself, Lord, what do you require of me today? Well, that was a question that Moses asked Israel. And then he answered the question. And the answer is, he requires only that you fear the Lord and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul. So what Moses was simply saying to Israel is that the only way to survive the journey of the wilderness on the way to the promised land is to meet all the requirements of God. And that begins by fearing the Lord. Another reason why it is important to fear God and this, that, and just like we saw in uh, Psalm 33 and verse 8 and also in Deuteronomy 10, 12, we are commanded to fear God. And that's just a whole different story right there. You know, it wasn't a suggestion that we had to fear God. It wasn't a thought or an idea. It was a command. It was a universal calling. And it is a daily requirement. So the command to fear God is not just an Old Testament command. It is also a New Testament command. Look at, let's go back to 1 Peter 1 and verse 17. We read that earlier, but let's read that again. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17, Peter says this, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, he says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here on this earth in fear or in the fear of the Lord. So it is a command and a calling for us to live a life. It is a requirement, a daily requirement to live a life each day Honoring, respecting, and revering God in everything that we do. Another reason why it is so important to fear God is that it keeps us from a life of sin. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and let's look at verse 20. Exodus 20 verse 20 says, Don't be afraid 
Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you. And so that, watch this, your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Also, if you look in Proverbs 16 and verse 6, you'll go there real quickly. It says, unfailing love and faithfulness make atonement for sin, but by fearing the Lord, people avoid evil. You know, do you know some people that always seem to find trouble? I mean, trouble don't go look for them. Somehow they always end up looking for trouble and always find it. And then you wonder why. Probably because they're not walking in the fear of God. Because had they were walking in the fear of God, they would have avoided all that. It is only that way that we can live a life that is pleasing to him and not a life that is offensive or disrespectful to God. And a good example of that is Joseph. Now, we all know the story of Joseph, how he was uh, traded off into slavery, sent off into slavery, carted off into Egypt. And there he was sold to Potiphar where he became a house slave. But even as a house slave, the Bible says that God was with him and he prospered. Now, he was probably the, the richest, the most prosperous, prosperous, and the most blessed slave in all of Egypt. But that's only because God was with him. So when he prospered, Potiphar prospered. So Potiphar was a happy man. As a matter of fact, Potiphar gave him the authority over all of his household. You know, when we're blessed, when we're prospering, we're enjoying that time. We're enjoying that moment. But how many of you know that in the midst of our prosperity, in the midst of our joy and blessing, there's a devil behind the corner ready to come in and rain on your parade. There's a devil waiting around the corner waiting to steal your blessing. Well, the same thing happened with Joseph. I want you to go with me to Genesis 39 and look at verse 7 because even though Joseph had everything going for him, even though he was a slave, he had one problem. And that problem was in the form of Potiphar's wife. Verse 7 says this, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully and says, Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now notice she wasn't making a suggestion. She wasn't praying and said, Would you? She was demanding, Come and sleep with me. But I like Joseph's answer in verse 8. But Joseph refused. How many of you remember Back in the 80s, during the Reagan administration, there was this campaign against drugs. And part of the slogan was, say no to drugs. How many of you remember that? Right? Well, Joseph had his own campaign. He said, say no to sin. And that's what he said. He refused this woman. And he says to her in verse 8, look, the master, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. Verse 9, no one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now watch this. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against who? Against God. Joseph feared God so much that he would not dare to give in to the temptation of sin. Why? Because he knew it was an offense to God. He would, he would have all the apprehension to prevent himself from doing something that he knew would be a, a sin against God and an offense against God. But how many of you know also that even with the pressure of sin and temptation, 
It never ceases. We saw that example with Jesus when he was in the wilderness and having been tempted of the devil, not once, not twice, but three times. Even after the third time when the devil left, the scripture says that he left for a season, meaning that he was going to come back to put more pressure on Jesus. Well, the same is true with Joseph. Look at verse 10. And she, meaning Potiphar's wife, kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. And watch this. He kept out of her way as much as possible. True wisdom and fear of God is when we do everything that is possible to avoid all appearance of evil. Because we know that if we give in to the temptation, we are offending, we are disrespecting, and we are dishonoring God. We are to make every effort to avoid every appearance of evil and say no when evil knocks at our front door. Matter of fact, if it knocks on your front door, don't answer it. Proverbs 3, 7 says, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. That means don't be impressed with your strength or your willpower. But instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If God had more weight in our lives, we would make wiser decisions. Amen? But to fear God is to hate evil and evil and just as God hates evil. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 8. And look at verse 13. <clears throat> Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. That's God speaking. So if God hates evil and he hates sin, we should also hate evil. And we should also hate sin. But it's actually quite simple. Because if we fear God more, we sin less. Amen? I mean, it's, it's that simple. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I think that nugget is for you. Another reason why it's so important to fear God is that it draws us closer to God. How many of you know that friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear God? Look at Psalm 25 and verse 14. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. It says that the Lord is a friend to those who fear him. And he teaches them his covenant. Now the New King James Version writes it a little bit differently. It says this. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Now the Hebrew word that is translated into secret implies intimacy. So let me read that from the Amplified Version, which shows us that. Verse 14 in the Amplified Version said that the secret or the sweet and satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear him. And he will show them his covenant and watch this and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. Now this means that those who fear God not only share a compassion and intimacy with him, but God, in a, in a close relationship with God, but God will also reveal some secret things to us. In other words, he's willing to share some deep, sensitive information to those who fear him. Now, how many of you have had secrets or personal things that you needed to share with, but you would only share with someone who's close to you and someone that you trust? 
Someone that you have a close relationship with, whether it be a close relative, a close friend, or a family member. I mean, who shares secrets or personal things to just acquaintances? And we, we all have acquaintances, but we don't all call them true friends. In the same way that God doesn't consider us an acquaintance, but he considers us his friend because there's an intimacy as a, a close relationship and a, and a bond that we have with God. And so God is going to share his secret personal things with us. I like what, um, what Jesus says in John 15 and verse 15. This is what he says. No longer do I call you servants. He says, for a servant does not know what the master is doing. In other words, a servant doesn't know anything that's going on when it comes to the master because there's no relationship there. But then Jesus says, but I have called you friends. And for all the things that I've heard from my father, he says, I have made known to you. So when we fear God, there's this close and intimate relationship that we enter into. There's this friendship. There's this, this bond that we develop with God to the point where God is able to uh, reveal to us some secret things. And we know that he reveals those things by his spirit. And boy, I tell you, that is such a powerful thing to know that God can trust you to share his most inner thoughts, his deepest thoughts, his spiritual things. God is able to do that because we are his friends and because we fear him. Those who fear God have that kind of close relationship with God. I hope you're getting this because what I'm doing is I'm just simply building a case to show you why it's important to live a godly fear. Why it's important to live a God-fearing life. Another reason why it's so important to fear God is that it causes us an awareness of God's presence and coming judgment. Most of us, when we get up in the morning, we don't always think that when we get up in the morning that God is present with us. We don't think that God is there when we wake up. We don't often think that God is watching us when we wake up in the morning. We don't realize that God is hearing us when we complain that we got to go to work in the morning. We don't seem to understand or realize that God hears our complaints. He hears our groanings. He hears about everything that we do. Why? Because he's always present. So many people are concerned about what other people think about us and how they'll judge our actions. But if we're so concerned about how people, are, you know, what people think about us, if we're so concerned about how they think of us and, and what we do, then how much more concerned are we when we know, when God knows our thoughts, knows our ways, knows our words, knows he, and he's aware of everything that goes on in our lives. If we're so worried about other people, we should be worrying about God. Because he's the one who's evaluating everything we say and do in our lives. So we need to stop worrying about what other people think or say. We should be more concerned about what God thinks of us and how he evaluates us. Because he's aware of everything around us. 
The fear of the Lord is a continual awareness that we are in the presence of a holy and just and almighty God. And that every motive, every thought, every word, every action is open before him and it will be judged by him. Now the following scriptures show that God is aware of every area of our lives and there's a coming judgment in everything that we do. Go to Proverbs chapter 5. And let's look at verse 21. It says, For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path that he takes. Now that's interesting because every decision we make, every direction we take, everything that we see, say or do, God sees it all. And I think that we need to be aware of that every day of our lives because when we are aware of his presence, when we're aware of the fact that he sees and hears all, that allows us to walk in godly fear because we don't want to do anything or say anything that's going to displease him or dishonor him in any way. Look at Psalm 139. Look at verses 2 through 4. Psalm 139 Beginning in verse 2, God says, you know when I sit down, um, or it says, you know when I sit down or when I stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. Verse 3, you see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. Look at verse 4. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. Imagine God knowing exactly what you're going to say before you even say it and before you even know what you're going to say. God already knows it. That's that intimacy, that awareness that God has about every area of our lives. You know, I, I think about when a child is learning to walk. And some of you remember those stressful times when the child learns to walk and this child is walking everywhere. It's like a walking machine. You can't stop the child from walking. And, but you're watching because in case they walk into a danger area. In case, and of course, when they're walking, they're also discovering uh, the, the, the stove, the dials. Uh, they're, they're, they're seeing all of these things that they want to touch and, and mess with. And so you're constantly watching them because when you see them doing something that they shouldn't do or walking in an area that's going to be dangerous to them, what do you do as a parent? You simply direct them or redirect them to a safer place. That's how I picture God watching over us. Watching over us, making sure that we don't make the wrong decisions or take the wrong direction because when we do, when we're walking in a dangerous area, God just simply directs us or redirects us to a safe place. That's because God is very much aware of every area of our lives. He's a caring God. He's our chief shepherd who watches over us, who cares for us, who guides us. And whenever we get lost, whenever we go off the, the, the beaten path, he comes and looks for us and takes us like a parent watches over a child, making sure that that child doesn't get into trouble. We're, we're talking about an all-present and all-knowing God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 9. Paul says, So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Him. And the question is why? Look at verse 10. 
For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. If we're to find true success, we have to be willing to make the necessary adjustments in our lives so that we can live according to his design while always being mindful that we are in constant presence of a holy and righteous God. Living in the fear of God causes us to live a holy life. The word holy means to be separate. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let's look at verse 1. And again, I read this from the New Living Translation. It says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile. That word defile means to pollute or poison or to spoil or to corrupt or to tarnish. It says, that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness. Why? Because we fear God. We choose to live a clean life because we choose to fear God. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.1 is a continuation of chapter 6, especially in the last few verses, verses 14 through 18. Let me read that to you. I don't have that in my notes, but let, let me, uh, on, on that scripture references, but let me read that to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it is a verse that we all know and heard. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And it tells us why. For what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, which is a devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Verse 16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, verse 17, he says this, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That's a call to a holy life. He said, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And then he promises that I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In order for us to walk in complete holiness, we must decide to live a God-fearing life. That means separating ourselves from everything and everyone that will tarnish our whole man, body, soul, and spirit. There are some things that we need to separate ourselves that has an ungodly influence in our lives. Things that will tarnish our, our relationship with God. Things that will tarnish who we are in Christ. Even people, we need to separate ourselves. How many of you know that there are people, perhaps maybe in our lives, that prove to be an ungodly influence or negative influence? If you find yourself miserable, negative, unhappy, ask yourself who you've been hanging with or who you've been dating or who you've been around. Because it could be that the person you're hanging with is causing all of that negativity coming onto you. You know, I like what the scripture says. In Proverbs 13 and verse 20, it says, Walk with the wise and you become wise. 
but associate with fools and you get in trouble. So if you're hanging out with fools, you need to separate yourself from them. But to be able to live a God-fearing life, we must be willing to make some adjustments or, or some changes inwardly and outwardly. And how we do things, our attitudes, our, our thoughts, our words, how we carry ourselves, and even those that we associate with. Let me give you an illustration. If the, United, if the President of the United States called you to tell you that he wants to come and visit you, or what if he chose your house above all the other houses in your community? Or what if he calls you and says, I want to have dinner at your house? Everything changes, right? The first thing that changes is how you clean your house. Now, I'm not saying you're not a good house cleaner, but when you know that the President of the United States is coming to your house, you're going to go through that house up and down, back and forth, inside and out. You might even rearrange furniture. You might even go out and get a picture of the President hanging him on the wall so that you can be a to impress the President and be ready for his visit. What else changes? Perhaps maybe you had plans to go shopping. Or maybe you had plans to play golf or go fishing. Maybe you just had plans just to sit out on the deck and just chill out and read a good book. But when you find out that the president's coming over your house, everything changes. You change your plans. You change your schedule. Even what you do with your children changes. You may drop them off at a relative or some babysitter just to get them out of your way so that they won't embarrass you or, or, or expose you or whatever. But everything changes. Major adjustments are made. What's unfortunate, though, is this. Many Christians will change for a man, but they won't change for God. If you're willing to go out of your way to impress the, United States, the President of the United States, shouldn't you go out of your way even more to impress God Almighty. Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from everything or everyone that can defile, pollute, poison, spoil, corrupt or tarnish our body or spirit. And let us walk toward complete holiness because we fear God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, Make the necessary changes and adjustments in your life. If it's separating from, from, from friendships, if it's separating from certain things in your life, whatever is necessary, whatever adjustments are needed, let us make those changes so that we can live complete holiness. We are to make the necessary adjustments to our lives that will lead a holy and acceptable life in the fear of God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the starting place for wisdom. And I'll stop right here and we'll pick up next week. But I really want you to get a hold of what you heard tonight. Because... God is calling us to live a life 
that is unlike any life that you and I are used to living. Maybe perhaps you might examine your heart and begin to ask yourself, have I been stomping on the Lord Jesus with my attitude, with my actions, or with my principles? What have I done to show disrespect and dishonor to God? Because once you know that, then it's time to make those necessary changes. It's time to make those adjustments in your life. It's time to separate yourself from those things that will tarnish your relationship with God. Make it a point. Make it, uh, an, uh, make it a priority to see to it that each day you ask God, Lord, what do you require of me? And begin to walk according to the way God will want you to live that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence once again. We thank you for being here in our midst. We thank you, Father, for speaking to our hearts. We thank you for stirring up our hearts, Lord God, as you give us clear direction on how to walk in the fear of the Lord on a daily basis. Thank you, Father God, for helping us to live life that is pleasing to you, that is honorable to you, that is respectful towards you, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, as you order our steps. Give us, Lord God, the wisdom that we need, Father God, to live life that is pleasing to you. And Lord, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for speaking to those that are here, those that are watching. We thank you, Father God, that your words have penetrated their hearts and their minds. We thank you that even as they leave, Father God, that the words are still resonating in their spirit, man. And Lord, we thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace and your goodness. And for this, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen. Before we close, let me just ask this question. And I'm looking around the audience and I see most of the people that I know them, but there are some that I may not know. And so, before you leave, let me ask this question. If you've never given your life to the Lord, if you never entered into a personal relationship with God, I'd like to help you with that. Those of you who are watching, if you're watching by live stream and you've never given uh, your life to the Lord, you never came to a decision of having that personal and close relationship with God, I want to pray for you. So it's a very simple prayer. All you have to do is simply repeat what I say, and I want you to mean it with all your heart. I want you to open up your heart because when Jesus comes into your life, he begins to start making rearrangements in your life, starting on the inside and working his way out. He wants to have an up-close personal relationship with you. He wants to reveal you, his will and purpose for your life. He wants to give you new meaning and a new life and a new direction. So if you're here tonight and if you are watching and you've never given your life to the Lord, I want you to say this prayer. Everyone closing their eyes, no one looking around, and let's pray. Say these words. Father, I ask you to come into my life. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And because I believe what he's done for me, I know that I've been forgiven of all of my sins. I thank you, Lord, for making me a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. I am now a child of God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to help me to live a life that you've called me to. 
I thank you for accepting me as I am and loving me for as I am. And for this I thank you and I give you all the glory and praise. I am saved and I am a child of God and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, if you said that prayer, if you look in your screen, at the bottom of your screen, there's a number. Call that number. There's someone in the office that will talk to you, pray with you, and give you some materials to help you understand the decision that you made. If you're here tonight and you've made that decision, I would like for you to come and see me and talk with me because I've got some materials that I would love to give to you. But I also want to get to know you and also pray with you. So at this time, before we go, let's worship the Lord with his tithes and our offerings. And you all know there are four different ways that we can bring our tithes into the storehouse. And it's up there on the screen. And of course, we have a basket in the back as well. If you can write out the slip or your check and place it in the envelope, and you can place it in the basket back there. But let's pray. Let's all stand as we do. And at, at the end of prayer, you are dismissed. Say, Father God, we thank you for honoring us as we bring in the tithes and offerings into your storehouse. We thank you, Father God, that as we give what belongs to you, your word promises to bless us. Your word says that if we give, it shall be given back to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall you cause men to give unto our bosom. But Lord, we give to you because we want to honor you. We give to you because we want to worship you. We give to you, Father God, because we want to give to you what belongs to you. But Lord, in return, you promised to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon us. We'll not have room enough to receive. And Lord, for this, we thank you and we honor you today. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone say, amen and amen. Thank you all for, uh, for coming. And I, I hope that you come back in next week for part two. And we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful evening. Those of you watching, have a great night.